Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. In coming weeks, we'll be covering subjects like the history of Nigeria and Poland's solidarity movement, and thinkers like Albert Camus and Eric Fromm. We're fast approaching the 10th anniversary of the Arab uprisings, which rocked the established foundations of power from Egypt to Bahrain and from Syria to Yemen. As a brief reminder of that intoxicating moment in Arab politics, this is how Al Jazeera reported on the fall of Hosni Mubarak. Just listen to the chants roaring in downtown Cairo, the hundreds of people walking to the streets. It's unprecedented. people we've seen taken to the streets today are not the 50, 60 activists that we've been seen protesting in Egypt for the past five, six years. These were normal Egyptians. They shot at us. Am I an enemy of the state? I came here to ask just for rights. The protesters have lost their fear. They are determined to continue doing this. It doesn't show any signs of stopping. Our guest today is Joel Bainin an American historian who's written extensively on the history of left-wing movements in countries like Egypt, Israel and Tunisia. So you spoke earlier in the year in your Jacobin article about the fact that labour movements and labour struggles had played a more significant role in the Arab uprisings of the last decade than is widely appreciated, at least in the English language press. I wonder, to begin with, could you say a little bit about that, about the role that labour organisations played in countries like Egypt and in Tunisia? So first of all, Egypt and Tunisia are very different because in Egypt, the Egyptian Trade Union Federation was established by the state in 1957, five years after the military coup that brought Gamal Abdel Nasser to power. Uh, And Nasser had until then uh, refused to allow a national trade union federation. So from then until this very day, the Egyptian Trade Union Federation is effectively an arm of the state apparatus. Consequently, every strike that has happened in Egypt since the late 90s, with the exception of one or two, has been a wildcat strike in uh, Anglo-American terms, which is to say they were all locally organized in workplaces by local leaderships that had emerged in the course of uh, various uh, struggles. So on the one hand, this was very encouraging because it meant that there was an enormous movement of locally and democratically organized labor struggle. There were some 2,700 plus strikes recorded Uh, in Egypt from 2004 until the overthrow of Mubarak. And uh, that's on top of an already uh, very escalated rate of uh, strikes uh, since the late 90s. And after uh, Mubarak was overthrown, the rate of strikes skyrocketed. And it looked very impressive that there was very large-scale social movement of workers in motion. And in the course of the uprising itself, the Egyptian Federation of Independent Trade Unions was organized. That is a a trade union federation that was not connected to the state or to the existing Egyptian Trade Union Federation. All of this was just about 
totally repressed in the wake of the military coup of July 3rd, 2013, which ultimately installed the head of the armed forces, Abdel Fattah Assisi, in power, and he is now the president of Egypt. So there has been hardly any news of any labor activity at all in Egypt since uh, late 2015. There was a wave of strikes in the six months, six months after Sisi came to power. So looking at all of what happened in Egypt over the last 15 years, what we see is a very impressive social movement of workers from below that appeared to have a lot of democratic and even uh, revolutionary potential that has been completely repressed. And that has to do with the inability of workers, and this is not through any fault of misleadership or anything like that. The circumstances were very, very difficult. Their inability to coordinate beyond a single workplace. So there were, for example, efforts to set up some coordinating committee for the 10 textile factories in the Nile Delta. And it simply couldn't be done. Workers had one day off a week. Travel was difficult and expensive and inconvenient and involved. If you did it, you were going to be uh, surveilled by the internal security apparatus. And it just, it was too big a task. So there, that's where we are now in Egypt. Tunisia is a very different story because there, the National Trade Union Federation, which is known by its French acronym, uh, UGTT, was established a decade before Tunisia became independent in 1956. It was the principal social base of the independence party. And even though its scope of action was severely limited by uh, Bourguiba, Tunisia's first president, when he adopted a more autocratic direction and ultimately uh, even more so by uh, his successor, who was ousted in 2011, uh, the, the union was always there. It was always legal. It always struggled for shop floor issues, wages, working conditions, and so on. It had an enormous amount of legitimacy. When the national uprising began in Tunisia, the leadership of the UGTT had been for years completely co-opted by the regime. And so at first, uh, the national leadership of the union simply called on the security forces to be somewhat less violent in repressing the movement. But below the national leadership, regional leaderships and sectoral leaderships were completely supportive of the movement. They literally opened their offices uh, to protesters, uh, uh, helped them uh, make banners and signs and gave them logistical advice. And ultimately, the UGTT provided the kind of alternative national organizational and logistical framework for the uprising that didn't exist in Egypt. So Ben Ali, uh, Zain al-Abedin Ben Ali, the autocratic uh, president, uh, was uh, ousted in January. 
uh, three UGTT members were made cabinet ministers in a new transitional cabinet. And then there was uh, objection from the uh, social movement that had ousted Ben Ali that uh, some members of that cabinet were uh, high-ranking officials in the ruling party, the previous ruling party, the Historian Socialist Party, it was at that point called. And um, the UGTT members resigned. And they did that twice. So the Trade Union Federation as a national bloc had quite a lot of influence in the early days of the post-Ben Ali period. And ultimately, it was the UGTT which insisted that the deadlock in the constitutional Congress that was established to, to write a new constitution for Tunisia be broken. They united with the Bar Association and the Employers Association and the Tunisian League for Human Rights and told the political parties, get this together. And they did. And consequently, Tunisia has nominally, at least, the most democratic constitution in the Arab world. It does not say anything about Sharia law being uh, valid in uh, Tunisia. It says that men and women have equal rights. Of course, many of the things in the constitution are not fully implemented in practice, as is often the case. But this is nonetheless a significant accomplishment. And the UGTT and its, more importantly, its constituent unions, and especially unions like the primary school and secondary school teachers unions, have been quite militant in the years since Ben Ali was ousted in 2011. Now, however, Tunisia is facing a major economic crisis. The government simply hasn't got enough money to finish uh, the current uh, budget year. It is negotiating with the International Monetary Fund for a second time for a, a new loan. The International Monetary Fund will seek to impose, as it always does, conditions that will limit government expenditures, meaning wage freezes uh, for uh, public sector workers who still comprise a pretty substantial proportion of the wage labor force in Tunisia, a new uh, government, the third one this year, has recently been installed, and the UGTT is negotiating with that government, which probably will result those negotiations in some modest salary increase for uh, some workers at least, and this is important because inflation is now running at 17% a year but no fundamental change of direction. So this means that the UGTT will become complicit in whatever neoliberal measures the Tunisian government is going to be compelled to uh, accept uh, in exchange for another loan from the International Monetary Fund. So things don't look great in Tunisia either, but they are still much, much better than in Egypt because for all of its problems, uh, the UGTC exists. It does have a certain amount of autonomy from the regime. It has very high standing among the public, which goes all the way back to the role that it played in the national movement in the, in the 1940s and early 1950s. So there is some organizational framework that can be built on for future activities. 
In the two countries that you've been talking about, Egypt and Tunisia, what has been the relationship between, on the one hand, workers' organisations, trade unions, and also wildcat actions by workers, and on the other hand, political organisations of the left, to the extent that those groups have real influence or real weight? So in Egypt, all political parties were debilitated and uh, had no real significant influence or even contact with any group of significant group of people, uh, let alone workers, with one exception, and that is the Trotskyist Revolutionary Socialist Organization, which is the sister party of the British Socialist Workers Party. Now, it's not the case that they led any workers in doing anything, but there were several labor journalists who were members of or close to the party who played absolutely heroic roles in reporting on the wildcat strikes that took place in the decade before Hosni Mubarak's ouster and who played an important role in the period when there was a little bit more freedom of uh, maneuver after uh, Mubarak's ouster, organizing labor events and so forth. And one of them, Mustafa Basuni, in collaboration with Anne Alexander, a member of the British uh, SWP, uh, published a book uh, about the role of of workers in the uprising, which is um, rather more dogmatic than I like, but nonetheless... um, in terms of its uh, reportage, uh, very good. So in Egypt, no significant political forces had much to do as political forces because, again, Mustafa Basuni and a few others like him, uh, yes, they were members of the Revolutionary Socialists, but that's not why workers welcomed them to report on their strikes and, and agreed to be interviewed by, uh, by them and so on. They, they respected them as courageous individuals who were willing to take chances to report the news. Tunisia is a little bit different. It was also the case that all the legal political parties were debilitated in Tunisia and did not have the confidence of any group of workers or any other social group at all. The one partial exception was the Communist Workers Party, which uh, until the ouster of Zainal Abedin Ben Ali in January of 2011, had uh, what we might call an Albanian line. They were illegal. Some of what they did was managed from exile, but they were present. And there was a six-month-long rebellion in the phosphate in the Gafsa phosphate mining basin from January uh, to June of 2008 and they were the main force that publicized it encouraged it and consequently when uh, Ben Ali was ousted and when there were finally new elections in their new guise as the workers party they became part of the Popular Front, and the Popular Front, including some of their members, became the third largest uh, parliamentary faction in the first uh, legislative elections. The Popular Front split. 
and uh, one faction has uh, aligned itself more closely with the government. The People's Party faction uh, is not doing that, but they are still there. So in Tunisia, there was, especially in the Gafsa phosphate mining basin, which is historically a big center of labor struggle, this far-left Maoist Albanian party that was active. Other forces were also active, but they came late to that story and, and, and were much more distanced from the actual struggle. Another important force in Tunisia was the Union of Unemployed University Graduates. So these were basically people who had been leftists in university and given the very high rate of unemployment in Tunisia among university graduates, uh, couldn't find jobs uh, when they graduated, and they did link themselves to labor struggles. They were present in the Gafsa phosphate mining uprising in 2008 and in several others subsequently, both before uh, and after Ben Ali's uh, departure. Now, the Union of Unemployed University Graduates isn't a political party, but it's a, a stable political formation that has had an ongoing relationship with certain sectors of the working class and uh, popular forces, especially in the depressed Southwest and, and South of the country. What was the relationship, if indeed there was a relationship, between these labour and left-wing organisations and the more liberal pro-democracy campaigners and organisations who perhaps would achieve much more of a recognition in the Euro-American media, whether or not that's commensurate with their actual influence on the ground in Egypt or in Tunisia? There was not much of a relationship, to put it quite sharply. The vast majority of the labour mobilizations, strikes, protests in Tunisia and in Egypt in the decade before 2011 did not address the question of democracy, did not address the question of regime change. They were almost entirely focused on wages, stability of employment, because there was pressure to privatize both in Egypt and Tunisia from the International Monetary Fund and other uh, international financial uh, institutions. So workers who had relatively good working conditions and job security as public sector workers, if their enterprises were privatized, would lose uh, those benefits. And sometimes there were also protests against particularly tyrannical managers who uh, were aligned with the ruling party. There were exceptions, but that was the main character of labor mobilization and protest in, in those years. So the urban middle class elements, who were quite small, to be sure, in both Egypt and Tunisia, who were organized primarily through NGOs, non-governmental organizations, or who were members of parties that had no real presence on the ground uh, outside the capital cities and even not in the distant neighborhoods of the capital cities far from the center. Those forces had little contact with workers and didn't even see the workers' movement at first as anything that was 
related to the struggle for human rights and democracy. So, uh, for example, in Egypt, the April 6th youth movement took its name from a strike that was supposed to happen in the mammoth uh, textile mill at uh, Mahala al-Kubra in the central delta in Egypt. The strike didn't happen because the security forces intervened and split the leadership and so on. It's a long and ugly story. But the April 6th youth movement people were not in touch with the workers before the, the date of the planned strike. I don't believe they were in Mahala al-Kubra on that day. I was. I didn't see them. They did. It's true. One, one of them called on her Facebook page for people to stay home on that day because originally this was supposed to be a national general strike, which never had any chance of actually uh, happening. There's no way to tell how many people stayed home in response to this call uh, on Esra Abdel Fattah's Facebook page. She was brave in putting that out there. I don't want to take that away from her. They put her in jail as a result of that. Uh, she got out, but she's back in jail now because the uh, Sisi regime is even more repressive and tyrannical than the Mubarak regime. And then the April 6th leadership in particular, which got lots of international attention because they had attended certain events and they were using techniques that were promoted uh, in the West. But after the uprising ousted uh, Mubarak, Ahmed Maher, one of the leaders, uh, said straight up in an interview with uh, Le Monde Diplomatique, the French uh, monthly, the workers played no role in the revolution. And the reporter for Le Monde Diplomatique, who interviewed uh, Ahmed Maher, had the presence of mind to interview people who had other views. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, a movie producer uh, who comes from a communist family, although he himself uh, was, was not a communist activist at all, said, well, of course, um, the strikes were part of what made it possible. I mean, no, the workers didn't call for Mubarak's ouster, but there was a, a social movement that went on for a long time that can't be disconnected from what happened on January 25th, which was the start date of the Egyptian uprising. So basically, you have had in Egypt and in Tunisia a debate over what the uprisings were about. Were they led by these middle-class liberal elements who are not bad people. I, I don't want to, uh, maybe I'm sounding very harsh about them, but I don't mean to say that they're, they're in any way not reputable, respectable people. But they had a certain view of what the movement was about, which was a pretty limited liberal democratic project. Were these movements about the failure of uh, the neoliberalism in the Middle East and North Africa, the failure of a particular mode of capital accumulation um, over many decades uh, since um, the international financial institutions started to promote it uh, in the region in the late 70s. Behind the events of the last 10 years in Egypt, there's a much longer history. Joel Bainan also wrote for Jacobin this year to mark the 50th anniversary of the death of Nasser. The Egyptian leader who defied the European powers still casts a long shadow 
over our politics today. The Nasserite experiment had a huge impact on the development of nationalism and socialism in the Arab world. We're now going to hear some clips from a 1979 documentary on Nasser, narrated by Henry Fonda. He was a people's pharaoh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser came to revolutionary leadership through military service. He was only 34 when he came to power, but he quickly became the wildly acclaimed hero of his fellow countrymen. In the following clip, the British Prime Minister Anthony Eden tries to justify the Anglo-French attack on Egypt in 1956. Our quarrel is not with you, still less for the Arab world. It is with Colonel Nasser. When he gained power in Egypt, we felt no hostility towards him. But instead of meeting us with friendship, Colonel Nasser conducted a vicious propaganda campaign against our country. I am convinced that we were right, my colleagues and I, in the judgment and the decision we took. In everybody's eyes, it was Nasser who had won. Soon after, Eden resigned, his health having given way under the strain. Nasser's reputation was at its peak after the Suez War. However, he led his country to a crushing defeat at the hands of Israel 11 years later. The Six-Day War began the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank that continues right up to the present. Nasser had blundered into the worst humiliation of his career. Yet his hold over his fellow Egyptians remained intact. Nasser really demonstrated his uh, political genius after the 67 defeat because he turned it into a personal triumph. As Egypt lay in ruins and humiliation, he offered his resignation to turn over power, probably knowing full well that uh, he wouldn't be allowed to do so. Nasser yielded to the cry of the masses. He would remain as Egypt's saviour. If you want to know more about Nasser's political career, Joel Bainan's essay for Jacobin would be an excellent starting point. You've described very well and, and very clearly the distinction between Egypt and Tunisia, but there's also a much more striking distinction to be made between those countries and Syria and Libya, where to begin with, as I understand it, you can't really identify a similar role being played by workers' organisations in the uprisings of 2011 and onwards. And perhaps not unrelated to that, you had a rather rapid descent into conflict in both countries, which gave rise to a full-blown civil war, which is still in progress, both in Syria and Libya, albeit in rather different forms. Why do you think there was that absence, compared to Egypt, compared to Tunisia, of, of labour or left-wing forces? So first of all, in Libya, in both cases, you had very, very harsh, repressive regimes, much more so than Egypt under Mubarak or Tunisia under Ben Ali. In Libya, the working class is very small. The traditional, what we would traditionally think of as the working class was limited to the oil industry, essentially, and, and its related infrastructures and transportation and so forth. So there just weren't that many people who could be organized in unions to begin with. 
and no form of independent labor organization was tolerated. Anyone who did anything of that sort was very, very harshly repressed, and there was essentially no organized political opposition to Gaddafi inside Libya for many, many years. People were in exile. Syria is a little different because while there was never a large trade union movement in Syria, there was a Syrian trade union federation. It was completely co-opted by the state beginning in the 1960s when the Ba'ath came to power in 1963. And the Ba'ath, its official name is the Arab Socialist Renaissance Party. That's, that's the whole story. So they were anti-Marxian socialists who nonetheless, in the 1960s, carried out the classical program of import substitution, industrialization, land reform, moderate income redistribution, and they compelled all forces to join a national front led by them. Just as in Egypt, trade unions often voluntarily decided that, okay, the Nasserist program is a pretty good one compared to what we had before. Uh, So we'll go along with this undemocratic trade union federation that the regime is establishing and so on. So in Syria, most trade union leaders, seeing that the alternative was harsh repression, said, okay, we go along with this. But then what happened in Syria is that from about, well, let's say Hafez al-Assad, the leader who came to power in 1970 and, and, and died in, in 2000, his son Bashar, who is still the president of Syria, adopted measures that were not imposed by the international financial institutions, but were comparable to those kinds of measures. And that meant that the social contract was broken in a similar way as it was in Egypt in that period, or even beginning a little bit earlier in Egypt. So there were plenty of reasons to protest, but the regime had for, at that point, more than 30 years, seized control over the whole trade union apparatus, and there was uh, no, no way to organize it to participate in any kind of protest. When the movement broke out uh, for democracy in Syria in February uh, of 2011. It came from places that were very unexpected. Youth in a Druze town in the southeast of the country. And if it had not been for the fact that the regime had pressed them so harshly and humiliated them and their families, that protest might have been quashed and gone nowhere. But because the regime understood that it's no longer able to meet the needs of the people in the way that it claims that it does, it needs to exercise that kind of repression. And this is what led, not immediately, it took some time to the, uh, what was initially a uh, nonviolent protest movement into becoming 
a civil war. You wrote in your piece earlier this year about the second wave of Arab uprisings that began after a period of retrenchment, counter-revolution, at best, in the case of Tunisia, a cautious stabilisation around a new system. But then we saw a new upsurge in Algeria in particular and in Sudan in the past couple of years. And you also spoke about the role that left and labour organisations played there and how they fitted into particular political traditions in both of those countries. Could you say a little about that? So Sudan first, because in a way, until the coronavirus epidemic uh, broke out, Sudan was looking like it would be the place that would have the best chance to, to really institute a revolutionary regime. It doesn't look like that's the case any longer. Sudan is one of the three countries. The other two are Iraq and Iran in the Middle East and North Africa, where historically there were strong communist parties. The Sudanese Communist Party was decimated in 1971 because it supported uh, a military coup that looked like it was going to be a progressive coup, but it failed. And they still exist, but they haven't been a serious force in the country. The main base of support of the party in Sudan was the Sudanese Workers uh, Trade Union Federation. And one of its stronghold was the railway hub at Atbara. And uh, it's not accidental, I think, that there were, uh, before the, the main revolutionary upsurge in December of uh, 2018, several rounds of protests against uh, inflation and austerity measures imposed by the uh, international financial institutions. Uh, but the a real takeoff point for the movement that ultimately uh, ousted longtime uh, autocratic president Omar al-Bashir was uh, Atbara. Sudan is also distinctive because, like Tunisia, it had a national network of, in this case, professional associations, the Sudanese uh, Association of, of Professionals, which united doctors and lawyers and veterinarians and journalists and all sorts of other professionals. Uh, Sudan also doesn't have a large, what we would call a typical working class, an industrial working class, but these are overwhelmingly professionals who uh, work for wages and are in, many of them employed in the public sector. So in, in purely uh, Marxian terms, they do constitute part of the working class. And uh, there's no doubt, uh, everyone agrees on this, that they are the force that organized and led the uprising that ultimately led to the ouster of uh, Omar al-Bashir and the installation of a transitional government uh, in August of 2019. So what you saw in Sudan was something like Tunisia in that there was a national network of workplace-based organizations that organized and, and led the movement, but the Sudanese Professional Association was a relatively new formation it was only a few years old when all of this began. So what that 
shows is the capacity for working people to organize themselves uh, even under circumstances of autocracy. That didn't happen in Egypt and why it didn't happen in Egypt and why it could happen in Sudan has something to do with the fact that in Sudan it was professionals, that these are people who are literate, who know how to use social media and cell phones and all of the modern methods of uh, communication and organization. In Algeria, like Egypt, the uh, UGTA, uh, Algeria, like uh, Tunisia, they use French uh, acronyms for the, the unions. So the UGTA was a, is still, in fact, um, a state-sponsored National Trade Union Federation. It emerged in 1956 in the middle of the Algerian War for Independence uh, against France. It was always aligned with the Algerian National Liberation Front. And uh, the National Liberation Front is nominally still the ruling power in Algeria. And the top leadership of the UGTA is part of what in Algeria is called le pouvoir, the power. It's very shadowy who exactly it is and who, what the relations among them are. And of course, this has nothing whatsoever to do with whoever was elected to anything. It's a group of... Uh, intelligence people, army people. The army is probably the single largest factor now uh, in, the, in Le Pouvoir, business people and the top leadership of the UGTA. So there in Algeria, the union had this historic relationship to the National Liberation Movement, which was of global significance. Uh, Algeria was a, a leading node of the global anti-colonialist movement in the 1960s. And so it had this enormous historic legitimacy, but it was completely corrupted and ossified uh, by the late 1980s. And when a new constitution was written for Algeria in 1989, workers were given the right to form independent trade unions not affiliated with the UGTA. So such unions were formed, but the government refused to deal with them. So most modern industrial and commercial establishments in Algeria belong to the public sector. So uh, negotiating over wages and working conditions means you negotiate with the appropriate government ministry, and the government simply refused to do it, Re- refused to negotiate with them, refused to grant them official recognition, even though the Constitution said they're legal. So it took until uh, 2018 for a national confederation of independent trade unions uh, to form. It consists of 13 unions. And there are a few other different independent formations. All of them were supportive of the national uprising that began in opposition to President Bouteflika's attempt to run for a fifth term in office, beginning uh, the uprising began in uh, early 2019. And there were general strikes in the course of the movement to get Bouteflika to resign, which ultimately the army forced him to do. There was a general strike in opposition to the army's attempt to impose early elections in December. The general strike was uh, impressive. It showed lots of uh, support, but it wasn't adequate to stop uh, the elections in December. So there 
was an election in which no more than 40% and possibly less than 10% of the population participated. Nonetheless, a new president, uh, Taboon, was installed. Uh, He had previously been prime minister under President Bouteflika, so he represents the old regime. The main military figure of the old regime and the one who ousted Bouteflika ultimately, Ahmed Saleh uh, Gaid, died of a heart attack in December of 2019. So he was replaced as head of armed forces by a much uh, less uh, formidable figure, which suggests that the military is a little less powerful uh, under the current uh, regime than it was uh, previously. The one consistent element of the new regime was the repression of the independent trade union movement. So during the uprising itself, there was a flowering of independent trade unionism. The leaders of the independent trade unions came out in support of the movement and issued uh, statements uh, supporting a transition to a democratic uh, regime and so on. Uh, But then already by the summer of 2019, after Bouteflika was already ousted, uh, when the struggle about what was going to happen next uh, was ongoing, Already by the summer, trade union leaders began to be arrested, along with other uh, political and human rights leaders and journalists who supported the movement. And now one of them, the the former head of the Kasifop Federation, Rauf Malal, has gone into exile and has been charged uh, in absentia with serious crimes. And uh, he has been ousted as the head of that federation by someone uh, who is seeking to depoliticize the Union Federation, and that appears to have been done at the behest of the regime, uh, although I haven't found anything that can actually prove that. Uh, But since February of 2020, the independent trade unions have had a much quieter role, uh, and especially because in March, in both Sudan and Algeria, the coronavirus essentially put an end to the movement. When you talk about the left uh, or the various left-wing movements in the Arab world, of course, in the wider Middle East, there are a number of countries that are not Arab, that are nonetheless connected with the politics of the Middle East. And some of those countries have significant left-wing movements of their own. For example, Turkey, uh, which has traditionally had quite a strong left. And to this day, There is quite a strong Turkish left and there's also a very strong Kurdish left. Left Left-wing activism within the Turkish state to a large extent is a coalition between the Turkish left and the Kurdish left. Has there been any interaction or any influence from the more recent phases of the Turkish and Kurdish left on the Arab left-wing movements or do they exist in separate cultural universes? Not as far as I am aware. Uh, And there are several reasons for this. One is, especially in a place like Egypt, Turkey is viewed as the successor state of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire ruled Egypt from 1517 until uh, 1922. So in the language of 20th century nationalism, the Ottomans were foreign occupiers. Now, that's not actually 
how Egyptians viewed the Ottoman Empire they, in, in those 400 years. Uh, they viewed it as a legitimate Muslim empire, and they recognized and gave allegiance to the sultan. Of course, there was nothing democratic about any of this because democracy didn't exist. But the nationalist movement succeeded in painting Turkey as a bad thing because of all of this history. The existing Turkish regime under the Justice Development Party has what we could call a neo-Ottomanist foreign policy. So it thinks that it is the natural leader of the former Ottoman regions, including Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, and so on. The Arab countries don't like this very much at all. So this means that there are considerable cultural political barriers to overcome to establishing any kind of solidarity. Moreover, the Kurdish question, which is really now, uh, although it not, hadn't always been the case, but now it's at the core of the, of the Turkish left, complicates things in the Arab world. There are, especially in Morocco and Algeria, large Amaziyah or Berber minorities they don't want to hear about difficult relations between Arabs and and, and Amazigh. I mean, they know about it. I mean, there have been uprisings in both places among the Amazigh populations. But, but this kind of Kurdish-Turkish friction, it does, it's not what they want to hear about. And Syria, this is a, a live issue, right? Because the Kurds have, the Kurds in Syria who are politically aligned with the, the left-wing Kurds in Turkey have been the most effective force, both against uh, the Islamic State and uh, against uh, the regime. Uh, and so uh, if you are thinking about the unity of the Syrian state, which the regime certainly is, you don't want to hear about the Kurds either. So those are some of the reasons why, despite the fact that historically, uh, certainly since the 1970s, there has been a significant left presence in Turkish trade unions, and there still is uh, a legal left-wing Turkish trade union federation disc. It hasn't succeeded in making much uh, of an imprint uh, on the Arab countries. Another non-Arab country in the Middle East, of course, is Israel. And relations with Israel have been a perennial source of contention and controversy in Arab politics, not just left-wing politics. How does the question of Palestine and the struggle of the Palestinians factor into the thinking and the activism of contemporary left-wing movements in the Arab world? Well, just the other day, the Tunisian UGTT issued a press statement condemning what it called the agreement of shame, the agreement to normalize relations between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, uh, and Bahrain. And all the leftist parties throughout the Arab world all say they support the right of the Palestinian people to national self-determination, uh, the right to re of the refugees to return, and so on. And this has always been a rhetorical element that is present in whatever the program of whatever leftist formations there have been. And to be sure, this idea is popular 
with people. Tunisians, for example, and Moroccans volunteered to fight with the Palestinians in 1948. Right? That was a long time ago, and that level of enthusiasm hasn't been seen since the mid-1970s, let's say. So on the one hand, there is genuine sympathy for the Palestinians among broad sectors uh, of the Arab peoples in almost every Arab country. And the left takes up the issue, but it's not a practical item on the political agenda. There's a final question that I want to ask you, which, which follows on from this whole discussion. And it's a broader question than simply what's been happening in, uh, in the Arab world or in the Middle East over the last decade, but clearly relevant to that. I think it's fair to say from, from what you've said and from what you've written before that the role of the left, the role of the working class, the role of organised labour since 2011 has been as one force among several, but not as the force, not as the leadership, as you know, part of a movement of movements rather than a movement in its own right. And even in, in the best of cases, the strongest of cases, it was capable of contributing to the downfall of the old regime to some extent capable of contributing to the formation of a new system, but not capable of taking power with its own vision or its own agenda. And I think there are two possible explanations for that, which are not necessarily mutually incompatible. The first would be a social explanation, which is that the working class simply doesn't carry the same social weight uh, that it did in the 20th century, certainly not the section of the working class that can be organized into trade unions and formal organizations. The second explanation would be more political and ideological, that you know, the failure to seize the agenda or to seize the moment reflects a lack of historical self-confidence because of all the defeats suffered by socialism and labour movements and organised labour in their various forms and in different parts of the world. Do you think both explanations are valid? Um, what would you make of that? I think both explanations do have some validity to a different extent, each of them in different countries, depending on the circumstances. I mean, for example, Egypt and Turkey are the most industrialized, and, and Iran, actually, are the most industrialized countries in the Middle East. In Egypt, the core of the wildcat strike movement of uh, the 2000s and the first several years after Mubarak's ouster were textile workers, classic sector of the industrial working class. Now, what kind of textile workers? I think that's an element of a third explanation that you didn't mention. They were public sector textile workers and often public sector textile workers who worked in enterprises that were either about to be privatized or where there was fear of privatization or in some cases in enterprises which were formerly public sector and strikes and protests occurred in order to demand that they be deprivatized and returned to the public sector. So the issues in that struggle are, first of all, backward looking. We want to keep what we already had. We want the social contract that these uh, nominally left-wing Republican military uh, regimes, Egypt, Syria, um, Algeria, um, 
promised us. We, we want them to continue to deliver on their promise. And that way of framing the struggle does two things. First, it means that you are addressing the state and asking the state to do something for you. You're not saying, oh, the state is our enemy, but please, Mr. Minister of Labor, listen to our appeal and overturn the decision of this other minister or of this other uh, element of the state apparatus that decided to do A, B, or C. So workers are often carefully calculating which element of the state apparatus is most likely to be sympathetic to their demand. And I lived in Egypt in the middle 2000s and and saw this many, many times, and uh, they were very good at figuring this out. The second thing that struggling in this way does is that it excludes a whole sector of the working class, which has, in fact, been growing. So in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Algeria, in Syria, although the dynamic there is a little bit different, in Iraq before the American invasion of 2003, there was essentially a freeze on hiring new contracted public sector workers. So in these countries, like in Europe, we don't have what you have in the United States, where you go to work one day and the next day you can be fired by your boss because they say, okay, I don't need you anymore. In these countries, uh, you go to work, you undergo a period of probation. It could be six months, it could be a year. But if after you've passed your probation, you essentially have a job for life unless you've done something pretty awful. So that kind of hiring was frozen in these countries at different points uh, since uh, the, the late 90s. But that didn't mean that there was no hiring. It meant that workers were hired on what were called temporary contracts, that is, the American system. Those workers would be hired for a day, a week, a month, a year, and at the end of their contract, they could be dismissed. So that whole sector of workers had nothing at stake in the way the struggle had been framed by the permanent workers who wanted to maintain or restore the status that they had in the previous uh, social contract system. And it was rare that permanent workers found a way to include the demands of non-permanent workers in their struggle. The one outstanding place where that happened was perhaps incongruously Bahrain, where the Bahrain Federation of Trade Unions, which was established in 2004, has always been left-leaning. And uh, for example, uh, Bahrain is, like all the other Gulf countries, has huge migrant labor force. And among them are some 100,000 women domestic workers, most of whom are Indians, Sri Lankans, Filipinas. And um, the Bahrain Federation of Trade Unions has long advocated that they be unionized. So on the one hand, they are the workers, teachers, and port workers and workers in the national airline. So 
fairly privileged workers by by uh, normal standards, but because of the left understanding of the union leadership, they have spoken up for and joined forces with these women who have no rights whatsoever. They're not citizens. They can be deported on a moment's notice. They're subjected to uh, sexual abuse all the time by their employers. So it's the difference in the political perspective of the trade union leadership that made that kind of appeal possible. Now, the downside of that story is that the Saudis and the Emiratis marched into Bahrain and suppressed the pro-democracy movement in 2011. So even though the Bahrain Federation of Trade Unions is still existing, it's much weaker than it was before 2011. And all forms of political opposition have been very harshly repressed in Bahrain. Many thanks to Joel Bainian for giving us such a comprehensive overview of the modern Arab left. For those who want to know more, his books and essays on Arab politics should be invaluable.